Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. Matthew 27. Verse 22 says, Pilate said to them, What shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? You know, as we gather today to celebrate the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus, we must ask the most significant and meaningful question that anyone really can ever ask. It was a question asked by Pilate when he was in a real predicament over 2,000 years ago. But it's not just a historical question. And neither Pilate nor the crowd gathered in Jerusalem that day are the ones that have to consider that question. Every person who has ever lived has to face that same question. And your answer will determine not only how you live, but your eternal destiny. A little background before we go back to that scene over 2,000 years ago. We've seen in the scriptures leading up to that day the resentment and hostility growing toward Jesus among the religious leaders of that time. But we've also seen his disciples and his followers grow in numbers. See, there was a, there was a uh, predicament there between the people and You know, you read the scriptures, you read the gospel accounts, and you see how many times Jesus had issue with the religious leaders of his day. And you may wonder, well, isn't Jesus a religious figure? And really, technically, no. Everything that the religion of that day, and many times the religion even of today, represent, Jesus spoke out against. Up to this point, we've seen Jesus brought before the Jewish leaders. And they all wanted him dead because they were threatened by his popularity. They were threatened by his teachings that challenged and even contradicted their belief system. In Matthew chapter 23, several times Jesus proclaims judgment on the religious leaders because of their hypocrisy. And he did it publicly So there was no doubt that they knew of his statements concerning them. So he draws a line in the sand here. In Matthew 23, Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to the disciples, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. So he was condemning them not for their prayers, but for their long prayers, for their prayers that were just a show and not really of a humble heart. Woe to you, he says in verse 27, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So he was speaking out here about their outward appearance of holiness when inside their motives were unpure. 
He goes on in verse 33. Serpents, brood of vipers. How can you escape the condemnation of hell? This was to the religious leaders of that day. Now those are harsh words. Yes, he was drawing a line in the sand for the devotion and for the allegiance of the people. And the line was getting more, more and more difficult to cross. You were either on one side or the other. You were with Jesus or against him. And isn't that the way it is today? Don't we see that? If we have a relationship with God, don't we see the animosity, the antagonism, even maybe in our workplace, maybe in our families? You're either on one side or the other. We see the line drawn in the culture that separates believers with unbelievers. And Jesus drew the distinction when he said in Luke 11, he who is not with me is against me. He he who does not gather with me scatters. So we see Jesus here recognizing, proclaiming that you are either with him or against him. We cannot remain neutral when it comes to Jesus. We have to make a choice. So we can see why the religious leaders wanted Jesus dead. I mean, think about, you know, uh, serpents, brood of vipers, hypocrites. In order to get rid of Jesus legally, though, they had to get Rome involved. Under Roman rule at that time, the Jews were not permitted to perform executions. That right was strictly reserved for the Roman government. So they could obviously, they could stone him like they did Stephen, but that would have been an illegal execution. And for Jesus, because of everything that he stirred up at the time, they wanted everything to appear legitimate. So they had three Jewish trials. They had three Roman trials. And after all of that, Pilate is convinced that Jesus is innocent of any crime. Look at the account in Luke's Gospel. When we see Jesus proclaimed innocent, not once, not twice, but three times. In verse 1, In chapter 23, it says, Then the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Then Pilate asked him, saying, Are you you king of the Jews? He answered and said, It is as you say. So Pilate said to the chief priests and to the crowd, I find no fault in this man. I find no fault in this man. Herod, after Pilate sent him to Herod, he also found Jesus innocent and says, again, continuing in Luke 23, verse 7, and as soon as he knew he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. Then he questioned him in verse 9 with many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes stood and vehemently accused him. See the animosity and the antagonism of the religious leaders toward Jesus Christ. 
Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends, for they had previously been at enmity with another. Then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and the people, and he said to them, you have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man. Concerning those things which you accuse him, no, neither did Herod. For I sent him back, sent you back to him, and indeed nothing deserving of death has been done by him. So we see here Pilate the second time proclaims his innocence. Herod proclaims his innocence. And Pilate again in verse 22 of Luke 23. Then Pilate said a third time, What evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. Luke's account in, verse, in chapter 23 in the last hours of Jesus' life, could be called one of the greatest attempts to exonerate uh, any person in human history. He went to great lengths to proclaim Jesus' innocence. And continuing in Luke 23, the thief on the cross also declared Jesus' innocence. It says, Then one of the criminals in verse 39 were, who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And saw something in Jesus that convinced him that Jesus was innocent. It says in verse 46, And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, and he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. The biblical account of Pilate's dealings with Jesus will lead up to the ultimate moment of truth. In the scene that unfolds, Pilate asks several questions. Each one is meant to either convict Jesus or acquit him. The governor, Pilate, is in a dilemma because of the large crowd in Jerusalem for the Passover who was being stirred up by the wicked and jealous religious leaders. And he's attempting to relieve himself of the guilt of Jesus' death. Take a look at a few of the questions that Pilate asked in Matthew 27, verse 11 and 12. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused the chief priests and elders, by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. The reason Pilate even asked this question is because the religious leaders had fabricated a charge against Jesus. Knowing that a charge of blasphemy would not be addressed by Rome, since it was a secular court, they had to come up with some charge that the Roman government would consider. Back to Luke 23, it says, And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ the king. Again, this was a false charge. 
devised by the religious leaders to, in order to get Jesus convicted and crucified, to get him out of their way. Now I'm going to break away here from this scene of the questioning of Jesus because we see here that his innocence has been proclaimed by people who really have no stake in the, in the game. But they saw something, they knew something in Jesus. So then, why was he put to death? As much as we are here to celebrate the resurrection of our Savior, we also must consider the death of Jesus. The Apostle Paul connected the death of Christ to the resurrection of Christ in a fundamental way. He tells us that in order to really know Jesus, know Jesus in an experiential way, it must be through both his death and his resurrection. It says in Philippians 3, 10 and 11, that I may know him, Paul writes, and the power of his resurrection, amen, and the fellowship of his sufferings, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, so we celebrate the resurrection today, but we must remember his death. If by any means, he goes on, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul uses the Greek word for knowing, gnosko, which means to know in an intimate or an experiential way. When it comes to God, we should want to know his kindness and his grace we should want to know the love of God and the beauty related to His character. But we should also desire to know the extent to which He went in order to redeem us. The extent to which He went to have that intimate relationship with us. And this can only be done as we reflect on His death. It's the cross of Christ that gives significance to the resurrection. It's the cross of Christ that gives significance also to a resurrected life, which is the way we should live as believers in Jesus. We use this example when we baptized people. In Romans 6, it says, Or do you not know that as many of us are baptized into Jesus Christ, we are baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism unto death, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For we have been united together in the likeness of his death. Certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. When we baptize someone, we symbolically bury them to be identified with Christ. We put them in the water, we submerge them, we immerse them, and they're symbolically then resurrected into newness of life as we lift them out of the water. That's what Paul is saying here. We must first be identified with his death that we may be identified with his resurrection. And we live 
then the resurrected life as Christians. By recognizing that our old self is dead to sin. By recognizing that our old man has been put to death, has been buried with him, that we may then live and walk in newness of life. Amen? And we can start to then live in a way that reflects the power of Christ, the risen Christ living within us. He goes on in Romans, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the, for the death that he died, he died once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, this is our application. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ our Lord. The resurrection of Christ reminds us that death could not hold him or have power or authority over him. Verse 11 is the secret to the Christian life. To reckon ourselves dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Jesus. We're going to go back to the interrogation of Jesus that day many years ago. It says in John 18... Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. My, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, to him Are you a king then? Jesus answered and said, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. The conviction of treason against the throne of Rome was a very serious one that Roman authorities could easily use to bring a death sentence on the accused. But Jesus answers as he does quite often by turning the question back on the questioner. And in doing so, he gives us a perspective on his kingship and on his subjects. Yes, he is a king, but not in the way that they were thinking and not in the way that many people see him. His kingdom is a heavenly kingdom. And as followers of Christ, we are not of this world, the Bible says, because he is not of this world. It says in 1 John 2, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. This means as believers, our citizenship is in heaven. The ruler of this world is Satan, and he has influence over the lives of people, over their ideas, their hopes and dreams, their worldview and their actions. But when we submit our lives to Jesus Christ and to His authority, then He guides us. He guides our ideas. He guides and directs our hopes and our dreams, our worldview, and our actions. Pilate continues to ask Jesus, 
in Matthew 27, then Pilate said to him, do you not, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered not him, him not a word, so that the governor marveled greatly. See, Jesus' mission was not to defend himself. His mission was to go willingly to the cross, to be our substitutionary sacrifice for sin. We continue to see Jesus' innocence proclaimed and declared. And Jesus' innocence is vital to the story of redemption. But although his innocence is vital to that story, so is the recognition of our guilt. We must come to a point of admitting that we haven't followed Christ and we've instead followed the ways of the world. In other words, we have to admit that we're sinners. We have to admit that we need a Savior. It says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Continuing in Matthew 27.15, Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner named Barabbas. So we're going to see here the, the, the difference between the innocence of Jesus Christ and the guilt of this other man. Barabbas was an infamous criminal whom both the Jews and the Romans knew very well. He's what we would call today a career criminal. According to the gospel accounts, he was a robber, he was an insurrectionist, and he was a murderer. Not someone that we would want out on the streets. Knowing his record, I believe Pilate was confident that the crowd would ask for Jesus to be released. This outcome would exonerate Jesus in a legal way, satisfy the tradition of releasing one prisoner to the crowd, and also relieve Pilate of any accountability regarding Jesus. I'm sure he thought it was a foolproof plan. He goes on, Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? This is a significant question he asked. But beyond the scope of the historical scene, you know, Pilate gave that hostile crowd a choice that day. But looking deeper, we see something very significant. According to some biblical scholars, Barabbas' full name was Jesus Barabbas. And the surname Barabbas is a compound Aramaic word, bar, meaning son of, and Abba, meaning father. So technically, Pilate was asking the crowd, whom do you want me to release to you? Jesus, son of the father, or Jesus, the Messiah? Jesus Christ is the only begotten son of our heavenly father. So what significance then does the name Barabbas have to our story? Well, just like the crowd that day was given a choice, every day people make the choice to either follow God's ways or follow their own self-directed life. 
And the two can't be squared with one another. Jesus says in John 8, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceed forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. He's making the distinction here. He goes on in verse 44, You are of your father, the devil. And the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, like Barabbas. And does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar. And look what it says, and the father of it. And the father of it. Jesus puts that distinction out for all to ponder, all to consider. The Pharisees question Jesus here in John 8, and he mentions the relationship he has with his Father in heaven. He says the word Father referring to God at least 10 times in that chapter. But he also speaks of another Father referring to Satan. And the way the crowd answered Pilate's question revealed their hearts toward God. Now for us today, the way we answer that question reveals our heart heart toward God. So he says, whom do you want me to release? Barabbas or Jesus? And he says in verse 22, what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ. See, because the crowd there said, give us Barabbas. Give us the son of the father of this world. So Pilate says, what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? And you know their answer, let him be crucified. So he released Barabbas to them, And he scourged Jesus and delivered him to be crucified. When the crowd chose Barabbas instead of Jesus, they chose a lying, violent criminal, a son of the Father instead of the true sacrificial son of the Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ. And just as they did, we can also choose the guilty over the innocent Lamb of God. Just that, as that day over 2,000 years ago, an innocent man paid the penalty and a guilty man went free. Think about that. In the story of redemption, didn't Jesus Christ, the innocent, blameless, perfect Lamb of God, pay this penalty for the guilty, me and you? Romans 3.24 says, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. You see, Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short. But God has made a provision here, amen? Just as that day over 2,000 years ago, an innocent man paid that penalty. But today, people still reject Jesus and choose another. They still reject the innocent and choose the guilty. Now their Barabbas might be lust, might be greed, might be self-centeredness. 
Maybe it's the quest for success or power. But they choose that over the things of God. One commentator wrote, The mad choice is every day made while men prefer the lusts of their flesh before the lives of their souls. But this is not just about the unsaved. This is not just about trusting in Christ for your salvation. This is also something that as Christians we must face on a daily basis. What are we to do with Jesus? That most significant and meaningful question that Pilate asked, we must ask every single day, what shall I do with Jesus? Are we going to put him in the forefront of our thoughts and our deeds? Will we relegate him to when I get around to it? Or will he be the focus of our life? As believers, will we rest on our salvation or choose to live it out day by day? Will we trust that the Lord has our best interest in mind even when we're going through difficulties or trials? Do we live like the very Spirit of God who raised Christ from the dead is indwelling us? Or like we have no power to walk in newness of life for His glory? That's a choice every day. What shall I do with Jesus? For the unbeliever, or for the seeker, for the one who hasn't made that step of faith, who hasn't put their trust in Him, will you confess you're a sinner in need of salvation? Will you admit that His sinless, perfect, innocent life is sufficient to save you? Or will you put it off for another day? Even though we have no promise of tomorrow. So the question for all of us here, believer and unbeliever, seeker, questioner, doubter, what shall you do with Jesus? Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening and may God bless you.